So Darren mentioned he did the foot washing uh, section that we're all really familiar with. And I have a really familiar passage as well. It's the portrayal of Judas. And then it's Peter saying, I'm going to die for you. And, and uh, Jesus saying, yeah, not so much. You're going to betray me before the cock crows, roughly 24 hours. Nicholas Carr is a culture watcher. He takes a look at trends. He's noticed a trend about our reading habits. That via technology, reading stuff online, we do what he calls power browsing. You read very quickly. You read it just to get quick hits of information. Very seldom do you read anything, like an entire article or something like that. You power browse it for quick hits of information. Can you imagine doing that like with the classics, like Edgar Allan Poe's The Raven, Lonely Man, Wife Dead, Scary Bird, Nevermore. Isn't literature wonderful, right? But here's a very interesting observation. Yes, power browsing happens, but it really happens when you already have read something. Like when you do go back to reread an article, when you do go back to reread an old book that you've read, he says you immediately kick into power browsing and you go at hyperspeed. So imagine doing that with the text today, right? The portrayal of Judas, Peter's gonna uh, boast that he'll die and then in fact he won't, we're done. Boom, let's go on to the next passage. So I want to reconceptualize what we're about to talk about. Uh, Endgame was one of the biggest grossing movies you can imagine, right? This cosmic battle for humanity. I want to visualize what we're seeing in the upper room as a cosmic battle. It's a battle between Satan and it's a battle between Jesus. Satan has been observing Jesus. He's been watching exactly what's happening. He sees now that these are the 12. These are his leaders. The church is going to be based on the 12. So Satan now has a plan to pick off two of them in the upper room. He's going to go after Judas because Judas was given a responsibility. He was in charge of the money bag. So that seems like that's a pretty big responsibility. And Peter seems to show for all of his boisterous sayings that he has leadership potential. So Satan now wants to go after both of them. I'm going to pick off Judas and I'm going to pick off Peter. Jesus is fully aware of what's going on. He's going to counter strike, but he's going to do it in a really bizarre way. So let's take a look at the passage with those kind of uh, uh, emphases. So we have two main characters. We have Jesus who says in John chapter 12, I have come into the world as light. But what a bizarre way to come into the world. The Jews were expecting a military leader. The Jews were expecting that when the Messiah came, finally we can deal with Rome. Finally, we can get rid of this oppressor. So when Jesus came, it threw him. They didn't expect a carpenter from a nondescript place like Bethlehem. They expected a warrior, or at least a political leader. Jesus was neither. It was a confusing invasion. And then you get one chilling verse in this passage that Satan entered into Judas. Right? These are the 12, handpicked by Jesus. And Judas is able to infiltrate, infiltrate the group. Man, that's powerful. So why don't we talk about Satan more? In writing this book, it was really interesting how much, uh, when I would look at other books about relationships and Satan, it was really hard to find one that was about that. Do you know that 25% of everything Jesus talks about has to do with spiritual battle? Do you know that the Bible starts with spiritual battle, the book of Genesis, ends with spiritual battle, the book of Revelation, and John even goes so far as to say the whole world lies in the hand of the evil one. But why don't we talk about Satan? In the West, we don't. In other parts of the world, they do. But we're embarrassed 
to talk about him here. That is a great cover for Satan. If we don't talk about him, then we can't enact what the writers of the New Testament will say, be aware of the schemes of the devil. Yet we're not, because we don't feel like we need to talk about Satan. We need to fix that. We need to become proficient in what the Bible talks about. To be Christian is to believe in God and to believe in an opposing force called Satan. But my students ask these really annoying questions, right? Immediately they say, well, Dr. Mielhoff, where did Satan come from? Why did God create Satan? Why would he do that? Why would he create an angel he knows is going to rebel? And then when he does rebel, why in the world would he send him to planet Earth? Send him to the garden where Adam and Eve seem to be ambushed by the serpent. I don't get that. If eventually he's going to banish Satan to hell, why doesn't he do it now? Do you know there's an obscure passage in 1 Peter that says some of the angels who fell that become demons were so dangerous that he consigned them right to hell, he didn't send them to planet Earth. Well, my students will say, well, if he was going to do that with some of them, why didn't he do that with all of them? My response is, wow, are we out of time already? Let's pray for our Bible department. Go to the Bible department. So now let's take a look at our two minor characters, the two targets. First you have Judas. He's a leader in charge of the money bags. Then you get Peter, who is uh, one of the building blocks of of that church, right? He wants to go at both of them. But how he goes at both of them is very instructive. First, let's tackle Judas. How did Satan get a foothold in Judas's life? Remember Paul says, do not let the sun go down in your anger as not to give the devil a foothold. In Greek, foothold means opportunity. We do not want to give opportunities for Satan to influence us, right? So here's how Satan was able to get a foothold in Judas's life. We've already considered it in our reading of John. So go way back to John chapter 12, and we get this interesting commentary about Judas. Remember the woman comes in and she breaks that very expensive perfume and she anoints Jesus? Judas is upset about it, but we get some insider information. So this is what it says in uh, John chapter 12, verse 5 to 6. Judas says, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii, a lot of money, and given to the poor, right? It seems like a very virtuous objection. Why not take that and help needy people? But John gives us insider information. He said this not because he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself. Judas is literally skimming from the top in the money that is being raised to help the disciples. Here's Satan's great tactic. Satan wants you to live a double life. He doesn't care what the double life is. He just wants you to live a double life. He wants you to say one thing publicly. That's awesome. But he wants you to live it out in a different way privately. You know, we actually have a comm scholar. His name is Irving Goffman. Goffman came up with this interesting idea of theater to explain how we act as people. There's a front stage and a backstage. Front stage performances are huge, right? Um, It's when you want to impress a person. It's it's a job interview. It's when I stand up at a Christian university and I'm a Christian professor. I want to come across as a, a godly professor, right? So that can be front stage, but God is really interested in the backstage. Satan loves it when there's a big split between the two. Now, I speak at marriage conferences. My wife and I have been doing this for like 23 years. It's bizarre to speak at marriage conferences, right? You show up and you're like, you know, the marriage experts, right? An expert is somebody from out of town and you're from out of town and we're speaking on marriage and... And, and, and people just rave about it. It's really bizarre. 
and nice. It's really bizarre when they come up to you and they just say, oh, you guys as a couple, you're just, oh. And, and the things they say about me in front of Noreen is absurd. Like, oh, you must just laugh all the time. What a godly man. And Noreen, being a mature Christian, lies in the power of the Holy Spirit. She's just like, oh, we love Tim, you know. Um, now, I, that's true of everybody. But when there's, but if my marriage was a mess and I'm getting up in front of people, Satan loves that. Men and women, Satan loves it if you think you have to be on a happy face to come to church. He loves it if walking into this church, you feel like you need to protect your identity, not be transparent. He loves it if you walk in here and you say, oh, we love God, our family's committed, God's good all the time, we're, you know, we're good with God, Jesus loves us, yes and amen, all of that's awesome. And deep inside, you're dying on the vine. You have a habitual sin that you keep going back to that's robbing you of the joy of the Lord, or you have serious, serious doubts. And if you're a young evangelical, you're leaving by the truckload leaving the church. Our young evangelicals are leaving Barner Research shows at a record amount because they have serious doubts. So if they have to come to a church that says, hey, put on a happy face, and it's all by faith, just don't read those kind of books or watch those kind of people to have those kind of doubts, Satan loves that. We need to be a church where we can be transparent. I love that we have a a senior pastor who's transparent. We need to be honest with each other. Now, it's hard to be honest with a big group like this. That's why you need to get into a small group. That's why you need to have an adult fellowship or find a group of people that you can be honest. Frederick Beekner said, you need to be with people that you can live unedited versions of your life with that person. Hey, it's hard being a professor at the Biblical Institute of Los Angeles, right? And I'm a public figure in the sense that I travel around and speak. I need to have a small group of people, and unfortunately I do. There's Rick. There's John, there's Doug, there's Chris. Guys that I can sit and say, man, I had a bad week. It it wasn't a great week. And they're like, okay, dude, we took you off the pedestal a long time ago, (laughs) okay? We've got to have people like that. Uh, Sir Conan Doyle was uh, the creator of uh, Sherlock Holmes, but he was also a jokester. He had 10 friends, and he decided to send them a letter. It was unaddressed. Nobody knew who it was from. All the letter said when you opened it was, all has been discovered. Do you know two of his 10 friends left the country? They left the country. Do you, are you living a secret life right now? Are you living a double life? Satan loves the shadows. We need to bring that out. Judas was living a double life, and it caught up to him. Right? Hey, by the way, quick aside about Judas while we're at it. Yes, Jesus quotes Psalm 41 that prophesies that somebody will betray him, but do not think Judas had to betray him. He didn't. Remember Darren's really insightful comment last week that when Jesus was washing Judas's feet that he chose to do that, he didn't skip him? That was a, a chance for Judas to respond. We get an even more dramatic opportunity in the upper room. When he's doing the Passover, right, he takes the first piece of bread, and who does he give it to? He gives it right to Judas. Looks him right in the eye and gives it to Judas. The Passover represents forgiveness. The Lamb of God who will take away the sins of the world. He's looking right at Judas, and you better believe Judas could have chosen not to, not to uh, betray him. Now, Jesus still would have gone to the cross. It would have been through other means. Somebody else would have betrayed him, but it didn't have. So how does prophecy work? Does prophecy work because God controls all the variables, thus he knows what's going to happen? Or does prophecy work because he knows the future? 
I'm going to throw my hand into the ring. I think God knows the future because he's omniscient, not necessarily that he controls everything. He knew it would be Judas, but he didn't control that it would be Judas. Uh, next, we get Peter. Peter, you've got to love Peter. He has everything you want in a young leader. He, he's ready to go to war for Jesus, right? So he goes up to Jesus and he says, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Now, let's not be too hard on, on Peter. Eventually, he will. Eventually, Peter gets martyred. Church history teaches us he was uh, most likely crucified upside down. So eventually, he does give his life, but right now, he's not ready to do it. Jesus recognizes that. And he says, Peter, uh, you're, not gonna, you're actually going to deny me within 24 hours. How devastating that must have been for him and the disciples to hear Jesus say that to Peter. Now, Satan now has a card to play with Peter. Peter denies Jesus in a pretty low-risk situation, right? Shame can be attached to that. Satan loves to attach shame. Listen, there's a big difference between guilt and shame. Guilt can be induced by the Holy Spirit, right? There, there can be good guilt, but shame is never of the Holy Spirit. Look what, Kurt, look what Kurt Thompson says. He wrote a fascinating book on shame. He says this, guilt is something I feel because I have done something bad. Shame is something I feel because I am bad. Hey, it's one thing to want to improve as a Biola professor or a husband or a parent or a church member. We all can grow, and sometimes you feel guilt of the Holy Spirit. But if I start to think I'm the worst professor at Biola, right? I'm the worst husband ever. Man, you're trafficking in satanic territory. Because guess what? Jesus has freed you from that nonsense. Shame can never be used to separate you from Jesus. Remember that great parable of the prodigal son? Jesus paints the worst-case scenario. I want you to imagine a Jewish son abandons his father, goes out into Gentile territory, lives with the pigs, and feeds the pigs. You couldn't ask worse for a Jewish culture. Now the son wants to come back. Satan would say, there's no way you can come back. That's ridiculous. What do we know? We know the father runs to him. You may think that your porn habit right now, you can never go back. You can't. You may think, in my life, I've so messed up. I can never go public with my sin. People would reject me. God would reject me. I'm telling you right now, you're in Satan territory, and you need to resist it. Because Satan right now is telling you, you never can come back. But we can show 50 million verses that say, no, you can come back. And the Father doesn't just begrudgingly take you. He runs to receive you. Men and women, you can always come back. Don't let that private sin keep you. All right, very quickly, summary. What do we know? Jesus announces one of the 12 will betray him. And in fact, one does. He informs Peter that in the next 24 hours, you're going to betray me, and then you're leaving. He's leaving. I'm going to take off. Okay? Feel the emotion of that. This is a battle for the soul of this upstart movement. And how do the disciples feel? I've been thinking about this, so I came up with this uh, illustration. I, uh, I was on a high school wrestling team, uh, Henry Ford II High School in Detroit. It was a pretty good program. I had a judo background. Remember, I came to faith through martial arts. Judo translated really well into high school wrestling. So actually, as a freshman, I, uh, I wrestled varsity. I did it all four years. I was the co-captain of the team my senior year. So twice a year, we had to go do something that we all hated. We had to go to Mount Clemens High School. Mount Clemens High School, they were defending state champions. These are high school students who look like adults. Do you know what I'm talking about? You, you look at them and you go, are you 35? How, how? 
Leon Zimmer was the captain of Mount Clemens' team. It was totally unfair. Leon had a scar that went from his temple all the way down to his chin. I'm like, that's unfair. You have to tell me where you got that. Vietnam? I mean, where did you get that scar from? So every year, twice a year, we had to go to Mount Clemens. You should have seen the locker room. It, it, was, it was the seventh level of hell. It was incredibly hot. The paint's peeling off the walls. And here's a coach who, again, we're going to get obliterated by Mount Clemens High School. But he imagined this kind of speech to the team. He goes, okay, guys, guys, this is it. This is the year we beat Mount Clemens High School. I believe in each one of you. I really do. We're going to do it, guys. But hey, quick couple business items. One, I've got to leave. Can't stay for the match. Sorry, but you're going to do great. Second, our co-captain is going to get up and quit the team like right now. I know you're going to do it, so dude, go do it. You already told me you're going to do it. Go do it. The co-captain leaves right then, and we're all sitting there going, what? But we got Brian Unruh. Brian Unruh was the captain of the team two years in a row. He was junkyard dog mean. Nobody even talked to Brian. He was that mean and a little bit unsteady. He would later, he would later become a Marine and even try out for the Pan Am games in, in wrestling. We had Brian. This, so we're going to be okay. Imagine the coach says, oh, and Brian, you're actually going to quit the team within 24 hours. So bring it in, guys, on three. Let's go get Mount Clemens. You'd be like... So imagine the disciples. A cosmic battle is happening. Satan seems to be really successful at this moment. And the disciples are feeling like, hey, are we really going to move forward as a group? Like, what's going on? Jesus is leaving. Judas just betrayed us. And Peter is going to betray us. What's going on? Now, Jesus knows what's happening. So he offers a counterpunch. The counterpunch is kind of bizarre. But let's talk about it. First, he says... I'm leaving and you can't come with me. I am going to take off. Now, I've thought long and hard about this. Why at this crucial moment does he decide to leave? What would be the purpose of that? Well, I was on staff at Campus Crusade for Christ, me and my wife, for almost 30 years. We love Campus Crusade for Christ. I went to Eastern Michigan University, a very secular university, and I was part of Campus Crusade, now called Crew. And they did something during the summer. You could apply and be accepted to a summer project. You would go, we went to Walwood, New Jersey, and you would get a job during the day, but at night you would do evangelism. So there were like 60 of us, all from all over the uh, country, and uh, it was fully staffed. There was a a Campus Crusade full-time staff member as the director, there was an assistant director, there was a Bible study teacher, a trainer. Every one of you was um, uh, put into Bible studies with a, a professional Campus Crusade Bible study leader. It was awesome. It was great. Great six weeks. Then we have a meeting halfway through it. They pull us all together and they said, hey, we're, uh, in one week, all the crusade staff are leaving. We're taking off. All students will be in charge. We're going to pick a student leader, a director, a female counterpart. We're going to have a, a, a student Bible study teacher, a trainer. And every one of you will be in Bible studies, but it'll be led by a fellow student. We're gone in a week. We were like, are you kidding They're like, no. One week later, a bus came. All of them went away. We're like, bye, what? Now, that's an interesting moment. You know what it did? It totally energized the project. You think we prayed before they left? When they left, the two student directors called everybody together, and here's what they said. This was beautiful. Are you in? Are you in? Because were you in just to impress the staff? 
Now I want to know, are we really in? Are we going to continue to do evangelism like they taught us? Or did we just do that to impress uh, staff people? It was electric. I think Jesus is saying to the disciples, are you in? Are you in? I'm not going to be around anymore. Do you own this movement? Men and women, one of the things that hurts the church in America is we're cultural Christians. We've got truckload of cultural Christians. You're not really in. Right? Your parents were Christian. I guess I'll be Christian. I go to church periodically, but God really doesn't make a difference in my life. Jesus is saying, no, it's time to ask the question, are you in? I think Jesus may be savior of some of us, but he's not Lord of all of us. Jesus is saying, I want to be Lord of your life. I want to control how you use your money. I want to control your goals for life. I want to control who you marry. I want input in all of it. And by the way, he's saying to the disciples, this is going to cost you your life, literally. In America, we need to make a really hard decision. Are we really in? I don't think Jesus cares. And I've got to say this carefully because I'm not the senior pastor. I don't think Jesus cares about numbers. I really don't. I think he cares about the right kind of numbers. I do. I think he's saying it's time in America that we have a revival. And the revival is going to happen when Christians say, I'm all in. I'm not partly in. I'm all in. And God, I give you permission to direct my life. I give you permission to direct this church. That's what Jesus is looking for because he can work with that, right? A small movement challenged the Roman Empire. It was fascinating. First thing Jesus does, I know it seems weird that I'm leaving because Satan's attacking you right now, but I promise you this will energize you to fight back. Then second, he gives them their marching orders. He gives them a new commandment, and this is what he says. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Here's a million-dollar question. How do we, what's new about this? Right, we already have the second great commandment, right? The second great commandment is uh, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Right? Th- this command to love is found throughout the entire Old Testament. So what's new about this command? Well, I'm going to put them side by side, and you'll notice very quickly what the difference is. Here it is. Uh, The second great commandment, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Then he says in the new commandment that you shall love one another just as I have loved you. Jesus is now the reference point. If I were to say to you, hey, we all need to love each other, you would all say, okay, this is what I think love looks like. This is what I think charity looks like. This is what I think grace looks like. But if I were to say to you, all of you need to love each other like Darren loves us, immediately we look at Darren because he's the reference point. Jesus is now saying this, I don't want you to love other people as you think they should be loved. I want you to love as I have loved you. Now, what does that mean? It's self-sacrificial love. Jesus is literally giving his life for the disciples. Men and women, Jesus is saying, it's time to up the love in this church. It's time to up the love among Christians. I want you to die for each other. I want you to put the needs of that person above your own needs. Because Jesus knows we are never stronger than when we're unified. That is where our strength is. And he's saying, I want you to love each other that you're willing to die for each other. Now that's radical. Because men and women, we split over the craziest things you can imagine. One of the cool things about teaching at Biola University, you get to work with your friends. So Rick Langer and I, we wrote a book called Winsome Persuasion. Now we're writing a book called Winsome Conviction, which is what happens when Christians disagree with each other on biblical convictions. 
Like I fully believe the Bible says this and you believe it doesn't and we really disagree with each other and I actually think what you believe is harmful for this church. It's harmful to this Christian university. It's harmful to this Christian community. How do we still protect unity? Because that's what Paul is saying. Above everything, Paul says, I want you to protect unity. Notice what he says, right? He got the message. Even though he wasn't in the upper room, Paul got the message. It was Peter and Paul who were the two main players, right? And this is what um, uh, Paul says. Uh, For the sake of time, let's just look at the yellow part. He says, I want you to make every effort to keep yourselves united in the Spirit, binding yourselves together with peace. Binding yourselves together. I want nothing to break this unity. Now, let's add a quick qualifier, real quick. I teach at Biola University. We have differences of opinions. PhDs can really disagree with each other and be totally convinced that we're absolutely right, okay? But we all have to, but we have to learn to live with each other, right? But we all sign a doctrinal statement. That doctrinal statement is not for grabs. If you can't sign the doctrinal statement, if you don't think the Bible's inspired and inerrant, if you don't think Jesus is fully God, guess what? Bio is not the place for you. So unity has its limits, right? You can have an unbiblical belief that's a core biblical doctrine, and guess what? We might have to separate over that. But Paul's saying, okay, I'm going to allow for those minority things, but the rest of it protect unity. The rest of it... Don't split over music. Don't split over styles of dress. Don't split because you think X, Y, and Z, and you have a brother and a sister who think something totally different. That's where I'm telling you, make every effort. In the Greek, it is incredibly powerful. You put a stake in the ground, and you're protecting unity. And Satan's going to want to challenge that unity. So, How do you protect the unity? Notice what Paul says. This is so interesting. Paul says this in the same passage in Ephesians. He says this. Always be humble, gentle, be patient with each other, making allowance for each other's faults, and I want you to love each other. Boy, that gives us an interesting checklist, doesn't it? If you're wondering how you're doing, you and your group's doing, or how you're doing as an individual, unity-wise, Paul gives us an amazing checklist that we need to go through. So here's his checklist very quickly. Look at that. I'm not calling Stephanie. Here we go. Yes, here we go. Unity checklist. Number one, are you humble? Or do you think you're absolutely right? Do you think you're absolutely right on most, most issues? Welcome to the negative thing about being a PhD. I actually think I'm right on most things. Pray for my wife, right? I actually do think I'm right on most things. But here's what Paul's saying. But are you humble? Is there a possibility you're wrong? Is there a possibility you don't have it right? Is there a possibility that the person you disagree with actually has some things that are right and you need to actually listen to? Man, I don't, I don't care what political persuasion you are. Did you watch that debate? People talking over each other, people yelling at each other, 10 people just yelling at each other. And Paul's saying, I want humility. I want you to think, what can I learn from the person who disagrees with me? Are you a humble person, or is it always your perspective has to be the right perspective? Second on our list, are you gentle? When you talk about that person you disagree with, you do it gently. Man, we don't do that today. We live in the argument culture. We demonize each other and we just ridicule each other. Paul says, no, no, I want you to be gentle. 
Even when you disagree with another person, how do you talk about that person, right? Life and death is in the power of the tongue, says the book of Proverbs. Are you speaking life or death towards that person? Next, are you patient with that person? We get that word forbearance from that word. It has a very specific context. Uh, the context is, are you, are you uh, patient with a person when that person has wronged you? So guess what? The person you disagree with isn't being gentle towards you, right? And is saying some things that are mean-spirited. Then are you still patient with that person or do you respond in kind? Hey, you insult me, I'm insulting you right back, coming right back at you, right? No, are we patient with people that we disagree with, fellow Christians? And then do we allow for each other's faults? People have good days, bad days. People don't always do it perfectly. Our senior, our senior shepherd is not always going to do it perfectly. All of us say things we have to take back. All of us live inconsistently. Do we give grace to each other? And lastly, do we love each other? Not tolerate each other. Do you actually love certain people? Remember a couple, uh, two weeks ago, um, Darren said, who's your Judas? I want to ask, who's your Peter? Who, who's a fellow believer that you think, boy, that person just thinks they're all that. That person just thinks they're God's gift to this church, and they just bug the tar out of me, right? Who's your Peter? You look at this person, and you are not charitable towards this person. We are not called to tolerate. We're called to love each other, and that's hard to do, but we need to uh, love like Jesus did. Notice Jesus' high priestly prayer that's going to come in John 17. He prays for the disciples, and he prays for us. He says this, I do not ask for these only, the disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. He's talking about us. Why? He knows the battle still is happening. Satan wants to pick off this church. He wants to destroy your marriage. He wants to disrupt your family. He wants to get footholds. One of the key things we need to do is ask the question, what does demonic opposition look like? How can I distinguish between an argument between me and my wife or something that's demonically infused? How do I know that a disagreement among church members is just what happens when you have a big church like ours or Satan is stirring the pot? What kind of criteria? In my research, I read, I read 20 books on spiritual battle and I asked the question, were there signs of the demonic that all 20 books mentioned? And I came up with my power five. And I'm going to talk about that tonight at five o'clock, right? And add to that C.S. Lewis's brilliant take on the screw tape letters. And that's what we're going to take a look at at five o'clock. Go to our website. What's the first thing that hits you? Our mission statement. By the way, Satan can read. He goes to our website, because he created the internet. He goes to our website. (laughs) Um, This is what it says. Empowered by the Holy Spirit, EV Free Fullerton is a loving community united in sacrifice and living like Christ for the glory of God. Satan reads that and goes, perfect. Let's test it. Let's test the unity. And you know how he's going to do it? He can't do it if we're unified. By the way, very interesting. What is the first piece of armor Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter 6? What's the first piece of armor? It's the belt of truth. By the way, a little bit of a disagreement. Is that the belt of biblical truth or the belt of telling the truth? Many theologians believe he's absolutely talking about telling the truth. 
So men and women, unity will be if we speak the truth to each other in love and we stay unified even among our big disagreements because he can't do all of this. Now, when Paul picked a Roman soldier to be his model, there's subtext to that that we have to pay attention to. When Paul's looking at a Roman soldier, he knows what the ancient world knew, what made Rome such a powerful army. It was not their technology. It was not their uh, weaponry. It was not even their tactics. It was the fact that they fought as a union. Before you ever got a sword or a spear in the Roman army, you had to show that you can march in lockstep. You had to show that you would not break ranks. If you broke ranks, guess what? You were severely punished. So when he picks a Roman soldier, Paul is saying the greatest thing about a Roman army is the fact that they fought as a fighting unit. He's saying to us as the church, you want to defend against Satan? Fight as a unit. Satan's going to try to pick us off on the edges. He's going to try to isolate you. He's going to have you get angry at a person, but you're not going to talk to that person. You're going to let the sun go down on your anger. That anger is going to turn into bitterness, and then bingo, he's separated us. We have got to fight for this unity. People have said to me, when, in researching the book, was there just this one aha moment? And the cool thing about Biola University, we have people like Clint Arnold, one of the top, top experts in the book of Ephesians, Spiritual Battle, uh, he was such a, an invaluable resource. People like Matt Williams. Uh, so I came across a verse that I never read it the way that some theologians argue it should be read. So I'm going to give you the verse, but I'm not going to tell you the reference. Here's the verse. Anybody know where that was from? Where that's from? Anybody know? Hey, it's weird to think that Satan learns. But he absolutely learns. He's not omniscient. So in the garden, he has his very first human subjects, Adam and Eve. He comes as a serpent. Crafty is how the serpent is is described. Crafty in Hebrew means subtle, by the way. Interesting to think about that. So he comes up to Adam and Eve. Many theologians believe Adam was fully present during the tempting. Don't think that Satan just took Eve off to the corner of paradise and isolated her, and Adam's going, hey, where's Eve? We're subduing creation. Where did Eve go, right? No, no, no. Adam was fully present during the tempting. When she sinned, she took the fruit and gave it to her husband who was with her. Many people believe, many theologians believe, Satan was able to psychologically separate the two, not physically, psychologically. Guess what, men and women? He's trying to do that in your marriage. Psychologically separate you, not physically separate you. You can live in the house and you don't have a marriage. You barely tolerate each other. Right? We can have a church where we all sing on Sunday and everything seems great. And we might be the most isolated group in town. Satan doesn't care if you gather. That doesn't mean anything to him. He only cares if we're unified. Adam and Eve were together, but they had been psychologically separated from each other. Men and women, let me ask you this. Is there a phone call you need to make? Is there somebody right now the Holy Spirit's bringing to mind and you're like, oh man, I got a slow burn towards this person, right? Or you're just flat out mad towards this person. That person walks in this auditorium, you make sure you sit over there. You see this person, And you think, I don't care about this person. I really don't. Hey, I'm not mean towards this person. I just don't care about him. Guess what Paul said? No, 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 no. You're to love that person. I am not loving this person. Paul says, one, you're disobeying the word of God. And second, you just gave the devil a foothold. 
And that foothold, if cultivated, can bleed into the entire ranks of the army. So men and women, some of us might need to make... I, so I hate preaching. Don't you hate that? I, I hate sometimes saying things and the Holy Spirit goes, are you listening to yourself right now? Tim Yoha, did you just hear what you said? And I'm like, doggone it, why did I say that? Why verbal? I absolutely thought of somebody after the first service. Holy Spirit, absolutely as clear as a bell, brought to mind, you have some unfinished work to do with this person. And I'm like, well, now why did I preach in the first place? <laughs> so men and women, do you need to make a conversation with somebody? Do you need to approach somebody? If you don't, you can give the devil a foothold. So let me pray for us. Let me pray for our unity. Let me pray that by faith you have some hard conversations with people and initiate that conversation today if the Holy Spirit is prompting you. Let me pray. Father, we come before you and we're humbled to think that Satan is probing our defenses and that he's probably getting footholds in many different areas. Father, let us be wise. Let us not blame everything on Satan, but let us be biblical. Let's know that he is a roaring lion seeking to devour us. So, Father, I pray for myself as I approach this person. Um, I have a pit in my stomach just thinking about it. But I pray that your spirit would prepare her heart uh, for me to talk to this person. I pray conversations would happen. Father, I pray for our leadership. I pray for Darren and his family. I pray for Jeff and his family. I pray for the elders. We know Satan loves to pick off leaders. We pray for their protection in their marriages, in their families. Lord, that you would anoint them and protect them. And that we, if we have issues against our leaders, would respond in a gentle way the way we talk about them. We would even go to them in love. Lord, let us not give the devil a foothold. We pray this in Jesus' name for his glory. Amen.